everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And this week I have an advisor to the Student Nurse Association in Tennessee. That is correct. He's also a registered nurse. He is a specifically cardiothoracic registered nurse. You're certified, right, right Hugh? I am uh, board certified in cardiovascular nursing. And it's really kind of ironic, but the stories that we have to talk about are kind of heart related. There's some heart heart surgeons involved, which, you know, works out. And we're also going to talk a little bit, or in the news segment, we're going to do an update on the Redonda Vought case, the Vanderbilt nurse who made the medication error Mayor and is subsequently being charged criminally for that. So many people have written me through email, social media, asking for updates. And so I'm going to do this as sort of an update to what's going on. We did just have a recent major hearing. And so there have been some pretty significant updates in that. So we're really happy to have you, Hugh. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So Hugh is actually the one that invited me to come to the Tennessee Student Nurse Association Conference last weekend, and I had so much fun just being on a panel and getting to talk to student nurses. I love student nurses. As you guys know, I rave about you all the time because you're so excited about nursing and still kind of have just that innocence, and you can't wait. You just can't wait to be a nurse. The new grads also, same thing. And so part of my mission here on Good Nurse, Bad Nurse is to keep that going. I don't want you to lose that. So it was so much fun getting to in person talk to student nurses and try to be an encouragement. It was also neat to hear other experienced nurses saying the same thing. And that's how it should be. We need more of that. We need more people encouraging each other and not tearing each other down. Yeah, a lot of times new nurses feel like they're going to experience being eaten by the more experienced ones. And I think that's a, a major contributor to why people leave the bedside at a at a fairly early stage in their practice. And so I really enjoy getting to be part of an association that brings what I would call baby nurses alongside more experienced ones and, and shows them like, no, it's it's okay. People are going to help you. You know, people are here for you and you're going to be a, a great nurse. That's true. We do need more of those people. And I saw that immediately in that organization, all of the people, how positive everyone was and excited everyone was. And it just made me excited to be more involved with that organization, because that's exactly what I want to see everyone do is kind of turn around the attitude, I guess, in bedside nursing to be that of what it's supposed to be. We're nurturers and encouragers. That's what we're supposed to be doing is taking care of our patients. But we got to take care of each other as well. Absolutely. So We'll get right into talking about the Redondavalt case, just to kind of catch everyone up to speed. If you haven't heard about this, this is a nurse out of Nashville, Tennessee, Vanderbilt Medical Center. It's a large university, very prestigious university in Nashville, Tennessee. And this nurse had been a nurse there for three or four years. She graduated in 2015. So really, when this happened, she hadn't really even been a nurse that long. She was working in ICU and neurocritical care. And she was working this particular day as a help all nurse. So she was, I guess, floating around and doing, fulfilling whatever tasks that were sort of needing to be done by the nurses who were actually taking care of of direct patients. And so one of those nurses who had a patient on the floor had another patient that had gone down to radiology to have a PET scan done. And she asked Redonda to go down and administer Versed to that patient because she was having a hard time going through the PET scan. She was too anxious and she needed something to kind of calm her down. She had been admitted for an aneurysm. So Redonda went to pull out the medication, the Versed. She also incidentally had a 
orientee, a new nurse with her that she was orienting. The two of them together went to pull out the, the medication. When she typed in VE for Versed, the medication Vecaronium, which is a paralytic, came up. And when she pulled that, that medicine out, she had to hit override, which is not unusual at all. This is the sort of thing that happens all the time because the, the Pixis is going, well, you don't have an order for this. You have to hit override or we won't let you take it. And so she pulled it out drew it up, went downstairs to radiology. When she got down there, of course, there are no computers. There are no scanners. There's no way to verify five rights down there. So she administered that medicine. It was Vecaronium, not Versed. She also was then asked to, when you do this, then leave there and go to the emergency room and put in a tube, like an NG tube or a Foley or something like that. So she administered the medicine there in radiology. They typically give the patient about 30 minutes for that to sort of set in, and then they go and get them in, out of this little holding area and take them for the scan. So she administered it, then went on to the emergency room. While the patient was laying there, of course, her muscles became paralyzed, so she wasn't able to breathe. And she went into cardiac arrest, and a transporter nearby looked at her and saw that she something was not right, went over to her, called a code. Everybody came. They ran a code on her. They got her back and they sent her to ICU, but she was taken off the machines a couple days later and she passed away because of this whole event. So that's what happened. Redonda, from the very beginning when this happened, told exactly what she did, exactly the mistake she made. There was no, her story has never changed. About a year later, there was an investigation done. The nursing board looked into what happened and they said there was not a reason to take her license or have any sort of penalty at all. It was like this was a medication error, and they went on. The hospital let her go, and she got another job at another hospital. And then when an investigation was done and they looked through what happened, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services filed a report, and they said, we're going to pull your funding at Vanderbilt. You, whatever you have going on here, this is not safe. The fact that this could happen. So Vanderbilt made some changes, whatever that was, that wasn't disclosed. And then at some point after that, very shortly after that, Redonda was arrested and charged criminally. She was charged with reckless homicide and neglect of an elderly person under sedation, I think is what it says. And that's happened in 2017. She was arrested this past January. So... She's gone through several hearings, and pretty much where we are is, if you just Google this story, look at all the articles that have been done about it, the prosecution, what they're saying is that the reason they decided to prosecute her criminally was because she overrode a safety mechanism when she went in and hit override, and because she walked away from the patient and didn't wait 15 to 20 minutes. So they're looking at the Lippincott nursing manual that you can look and see what the standard procedures are for us for what we do and what Lippincott suggests. And they're saying, well, she did not follow through with what a, the standard, what a normal person in that profession should do. And so because she didn't monitor the patient for 15 to 20 minutes. So those are the two reasons that they have focused on for charging her criminally. And my thing is, Hugh, they've gone through several hearings, like five or six this whole year. They keep coming back. And, you know, in most situations, you have the prosecution and you have the defense, and they try to come together and come up with some sort of a solution. It's like, where can we meet in the middle? And they've never been able to come up with an agreement. And so I just, I'm like, I, I'm absolutely flabbergasted like why the DA would be holding on 
to this criminal, reckless homicide, neglect charge in this situation. I really don't understand it. I don't know. It, it, it makes me wonder if, if they're trying to make an example of her for some reason. They're, they're adamant that it, it play out one way and, and nothing different to send a, a, a message, maybe. And I, I think that that's, that's, and I'm sure this has been talked about ad nauseum, but when we prosecute people like this, it's maybe unintentionally creating a culture where people don't want to report their own errors. And people are going to get hurt because of it. And so it's setting a dangerous precedent. Well, yeah. And we've talked about just culture on Good Nurse, Bad Nurse many times in reference to this very case and others that you have to have an environment. And when you do something, when you're in healthcare and you have people's lives in your hands, you do have to have a culture where you can be a human being, make a mistake, and then report that so that the institution and everyone involved understands what went wrong so that you can change things to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But if people are afraid that they're going to go to prison, lose their freedom, lose their family, lose everything because they made a mistake. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I would start to wonder. I mean, you know, you, you look at, you know, you look at the perception of nursing from the outside, Someone who maybe doesn't have experience in healthcare, either as a patient or as a as a worker, you know, seeing what nurses actually do, and so then you think, okay, these people go to school, and you know, it's a it's a very hard program, it's demanding, and that doesn't matter where you go. Nursing school in general is just tough, you know. And you get out and you work long hours and miss holidays and miss time with your family, and you know, you you don't make all that much given you know some of the responsibilities that you have, and then you also run the risk of going to prison because. Unfortunately, you're a human and you made a mistake and then tried to report it and end up in prison. Yeah, exactly. And when it comes right down to it, I don't want to be in a profession where I have to choose my integrity versus my freedom. I don't want to be worried that if I make a mistake, I'm going to be struggling with. I want to tell this. I have to tell this. I can't not tell this. Other people could be affected by this. And therefore, I'm going to have to tell what I did and risk going to jail. That's It shouldn't be that way. It sh- really should not be that way. And I think people with integrity are going to just have to, to say, I'm just not going to do this because it's it's way too, it's hard enough as it is if you have to worry about this too. People are leaving nursing in droves for a reason. And it is all the things that you mentioned. It's the incongruency between the pay and the responsibility that you have the nurse-to-patient ratios and how difficult the job is. All of those things are reason enough that are pushing people out. They get out of nursing school and within two years already going, what else can I do because this is too much? I can't handle this and I got paid enough for this. So here we are trying to encourage nurses to stay at the bedside, to fight for more, fight for better ratios, fight for more money, don't just leave, and then... This comes along, and it's kind of hard to justify telling people to stay in this situation. It is, and, and it's it's a complex situation because, you know, one aspect of this impacts all the other ones. If you've got people getting out of bedside nursing because they're concerned about whatever the, the issue is, prison time or even just ethical distress, which unfortunately is more common than I wish it was, you've got people leaving bedside nursing at an alarming rate, which then makes it difficult to fix your ratios because there's not as many nurses which kind of exacerbates some of the other issues because then, you know, you're trying to do more with less and the cycle just repeats itself and it gets worse. As we know, our need for nurses is only increasing. It's not decreasing. So we could very easily get in a really serious imbalance worse than what we already have. I totally agree. And I just want to remind people that 
whenever I go on to nursing groups, um, Facebook or, or whatnot, there's a lot, there are lots of different ones that you can kind of see what people are saying and what they're thinking about different situations. And when I look at this one in particular and see what people are saying, most people are very encouraging and they fall on the side of Redonda. So every now and then you get someone who says, well, I would have never done that. I can't believe she made that mistake. That's ridiculous. She shouldn't be a nurse, you know, things like that. You're always going to have people like that. And if that's what your opinion is, that's your opinion. But my thing is, even if you believe that, if you believe that she should lose her license and never be able to be a nurse again and should never work in the medical field again, whatever it is your strongest stance is, do you think that she should be charged criminally for it? Facing prison time for making a mistake. Think about all of the jobs out there that could affect potentially someone's life. There are lots of different things. I guarantee you there's computer programmers who if you if they make a mistake, it could cause something to not work correctly, something to go off course, and it could cost someone's life. That's just there are too many things in this world that rely on human beings to run it. Yeah. Stop and think about your job. If you're not a nurse, th think about your job. Is there a manual? Is there a right way to do it? And then a way that you really in the real world have to do it because otherwise it's never going to get done. If that's the case and you overrode that and then someone comes along and says, you know, because you did that and then you made this mistake, you cost this person their life. So you're going to go to prison for 10 years. Yeah. I um, think about like robotic assisted surgery. I've, I've got a friend that years ago was having a procedure that was uh, robotically assisted and something went wrong with the robot and it almost killed him. And I, I don't know what the, what the you know malfunction was, but you could look at that and say, okay, well, John Doe, the, the guy that riveted the robot together, you know, didn't use the whatever tool he was using perfectly correctly, or he did something outside whatever the policy was to reach the end goal. And that contributed to my, my friend's harm. And so now, now you're talking about somebody that hasn't even practiced clinically ever. And now they could potentially face criminal charges because they, they did something counter to policy or, or protocol. And, you know, I'm, I'm always advocating for following policy and protocol procedure wherever you are. But, you know, if, if you're if you're completing 500 different tasks in a day, I, I would think it almost impossible to be able to remember every single point of everything and, and adhere to that. So it's got far reaching ramifications, even outside healthcare. I think. Very well put. So we'll keep talking about this some more. And I guess we're ready. You know, if this is good nurse, bad nurse, but we also talk about other medical professionals that sometimes do bad things. When we're talking about the bad nurse or the bad doctor or the bad respiratory therapist or whatever the profession is, this is not, we're not talking about mistakes here. We're talking about things that were intentionally done and that they knew exactly what they were doing. Hey Q, we're in a commercial, so we got to talk fast. Let's do it. Okay. So I think I know the answer to this question, but have you ever signed up for a travel nurse agency and immediately regretted it? When you started getting all those texts and emails? Sadly, Tina, yes, I have. Okay, well, Trusted Health is a nurse travel agency that's going to change all of that. They make it simple and fast to go online and sign up, and then you immediately start seeing job opportunities that are tailored to your interests. And you can even see the pay. Sounds too good to be true, Tina. Well, the best part is there are no recruiters, no unwanted emails, and no unwanted text messages. No recruiters? Tina, I'm going to need some help. Where are we going to go if we have all these questions? Right, right. Well, 
They do have nurse advocates who are there to answer any questions. They'll help guide you through the process, but they're not commission-based, so they're not going to try to pressure you into taking a job that you don't want. Cool beans, cool beans. Well, tell them where to sign up because we're running out of time here. Okay, right, right. So, you guys, if you're even a little curious about travel nursing and you want to help support our little podcast here at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, please go to www.trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and follow the steps to completing the sign-up process. It's real important that you complete the whole process for us to get credit, and we would really appreciate the support. Remember to be sure and put forward slash good nurse at the end of the URL when you go to their website so they'll know we sent you there. Trusted Health, they're not just an agency, they're a movement. This story that we're doing is about Dr. Richard Illis, and I'm going to just pronounce it that way because I really don't know if that's how it's pronounced or not. It's I-L-L-E-S, so I'm going to say Illis. That, that, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> so he's our doctor. Our victim here is Miriam Illis. That, is, that was his wife. And Miriam was a nurse herself. She was actually an operating nurse. And when they met, they got married, and then they had a baby, Richie. And then it, when, he, when Richie was two years old, she decided to stay home and be a stay-at-home mom. And she hired another nurse to take her place there in the operating room. So this new nurse, I guess, just kind of stepped right on into her place because in more, more ways than one, because <laughs> all of a sudden she starts getting suspicious. Dr. Ellis was just not acting right, I guess, and she knew something was off. And she did find out that he had been having an affair with the new nurse that had replaced her. So she filed for divorce. She moved out with Richie. He was five by the time this happened. So they start going through divorce. And Dr. Illis, who is kind of a control freak, can you imagine a, a cardiothoracic surgeon or a heart surgeon being a control freak? No, I, I can't imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> you work with a lot of, of cardiologists yes, the- and and cardiac surgeons what do you think about that i i, I think uh I, I think that's a pretty typical character trait for them but i'm i'm glad that it is because you know it's it's very uh delicate matter you know you've you've got to pay attention to detail and, and be sure things are done the right way but yeah in in that setting when they're when they have someone's chest open and they're having to do the very delicate procedures that they're having to do, you definitely want them to be a control freak. For sure. For sure. <laughs> That's the kind of personality you want. So when in his personal life, it maybe was not the best characteristic to have as a husband. So he was not happy when she was asking for a lot of money in the divorce settlement. So... In fact, the judge ended up awarding her something like $13,000 a month. And he just wasn't happy with that. And the, it all hadn't kind of gone through officially. They still hadn't divided up property and that sort of thing. But I guess they knew how things were going to sort of play out there. And he knew that this was about to happen. So Miriam, first of all, just to kind of talk about her a little bit, because we do like to honor the victim as much as we can, just kind of, there is someone who lost their life in these situations. And she was, according to all of the people around her, her family, friends, 
people in the community, anyone that knew her. Basically, she didn't have an enemy in the world, they would say. She was the, the most wonderful person. She taught Sunday school. She was a beautiful person inside and out, loved her, her child. She chose to give up her career to stay at home with him. And so this is the person that we're talking about that lost her life. So one night, she's talking on the phone, and it's snowing outside. And they, this happened in Pennsylvania, and this was in December. So, or excuse me, no, it was January. This was in January in Pennsylvania. So it's there's a snowstorm. And where I live, a snowstorm is probably not the same thing as a snowstorm in Pennsylvania. I'm going to just go out on no. one. <laughs> no, Here, it's laughable, the difference. Yeah, it really is. Here, if you have like a... Du- yeah, I'm going to say you don't even have to have a dusting of snow. I mean, dusting of snow is full-on panic. But if you are just... If the meteorologists start talking about snow, you can't find any bread or milk in the grocery stores whatsoever around here. People panic and they think they're going to be in their houses for days on end and starve. <laughs> and, for, oh, yeah. and for some reason they want to make sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and schools will close for like a week in advance ahead of a storm, which is really the, the whole world comes to a grinding halt if there's even a, a, a you know, a, a threat of a snowflake. I know. This was not just a little sprinkling of snow. This was a massive snowstorm. It was a, it was a big deal. So, Miriam is on the phone at like 10 o'clock at night talking to a friend. The friend was in another state. And the friend said that she kind of made some comments. She had been talking about the fact that she sort of felt threatened. She felt like someone was watching her. She was worried. She may have even made a comment about not not wanting to be in front of a window, which is kind of weird. So... When she's on the phone with his friend, the friend said that suddenly she heard a loud noise and then the phone went dead and she tried to call her back and it was busy, but she knew there was this massive snowstorm and that it's very common for power lines to go down or things to transformers to whatever. And (laughs) so it wouldn't have been unusual for something like that to happen and the electricity or the phone line, you know, to be turned off and she just couldn't reach her. So she just figured she would call her back whenever the the phone was turned back on. What actually happened, though, is a couple of days later, she was supposed to teach Sunday school. And when she didn't show up, they knew something was wrong. She was always there. And they went to look for her at her house. They could see someone laying in the floor when they looked through the window. They kicked in the door. They saw her laying there. She was laying there on the kitchen floor. She had been shot once through the heart. And there was a phone laying on the floor right beside her. So she was definitely, obviously she was dead. I mean, she'd been laying there, but she was shot through the heart. So it wasn't like it was an instant. But what happened is because that phone was laying there, that was a huge clue for police. When they saw the phone, they went, okay, she must have been talking, or was she talking on the phone? So they look at the phone records, and they can see she was having a conversation. This is two days ago. So it might have been difficult for them to pinpoint the time of death because she had been laying there all this time. 
they may have been able to say, well, probably a day or two, but to pinpoint it at the exact time, most likely they wouldn't be able to do that. But because that phone is lying there, they look at the phone records and they see that a, a call was stopped at 1037. The last phone call was 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 going on at 1037. And, of course, talking to her friend that says, no, we were just talking and I heard a loud sound and it went dead and it was busy. So they knew that that's exactly the time. And that's pretty important if, if police are able to pinpoint the exact time of death. And I would say unusual, really, unless you have video. Right. Well, and, you know, I think usually most things are not documented that way. No. And, you know, th- this was this was in the 90s, I guess. So I, it, I would think it would be even more unusual, you know, now with all of our smartphones and smart devices in our homes that apparently listen to everything, they've, they've been able to show they can document, they, you know, they can go back and reconstruct some uh, crime scenes using that. But, you know, in the 90s, that wouldn't have been an option. Yeah, that's true. So they start looking around, of course, the area to see if they have any other clues that they can find. And they find that there are some shoe prints in the snow. There's a, it's a size 14 Reebok, like a athletic type shoe in the snow. They also found a discarded cigarette butt about 70 yards from, or 70 feet, I think, from the house. And they found what looked like was probably a silencer that would go on a rifle, like a makeshift silencer, something that would, it looked like it was probably made by someone. And it would be, they could tell that it was something that would be used on a rifle. So who is going to be our number one suspect in any, any murder case whatsoever, really? You know where the first place they go to is, is there a spouse? Is there some significant other, anyone that the person is in a relationship? They're going to rule them out first, right? Always, always. Every time. So... Not only is, does, she, is, does she have a relationship with someone, she's obviously married, but going through a divorce and a contentious divorce at that, where Dr. Illis was clearly not happy with how much money she was going to be getting in the settlement. So huge red flag here. Now, he starts immediately acting like that's really no big deal. He, it didn't bother him at all. And that's not that much money. He makes so much money that $13,000 much a month was nothing to him and it didn't bother him at all. In in fact, I think, I think his exact statement was quote, there's plenty of money to go around. Oh yeah. At this point. Oh wait. Yeah. Why would I be worried about that? There's no motive. I don't even have a motive. $13,000. That's nothing. So also there is a problem that the police have because at the time that this happened, he was on his way to his sister's house. He was going to go away for the weekend with Richie, their son, who was five, remember. And they're headed three hours away from where this happened. So they're thinking, is there any way he could still be involved and yet be so far away? Because there is a snowstorm. So it's it would be kind of hard to for him to drive all the way back, you know, plan this out is, is what, or could, could it be? They start doing some, I guess, some experimenting and they videotaped and timed a route, you know, the route 
that he says he took. And they, they did it both good conditions and bad conditions to see if, if it added up at all. And what they said was they didn't feel like it really added up the time. Right. When people give a specific time frame, you know, for I was, I was at this place at this time with these people, you can objectively prove that. That's not some subjective thing. And so if the police are able to go back and retrace this, you know, driving route in several different conditions and things just don't match up, then that, that should start sending up some serious red flags. Mm-hmm. Well, what he said was that on the way to his sister's house, the snowstorm got so bad that he had to pull off. And he went to a McDonald's and then they ended up getting a hotel, I think, instead of saying his sister's. And so there were witnesses that saw him at the McDonald's, but they weren't really sure about the time. And like you said, this was in the 90s. Maybe they didn't have the technology. Maybe today they would have dates. I don't know if they had that at the time or not. But for whatever reason, they weren't able to pin down an exact time that he was at the McDonald's. But there were witnesses that say they saw him. So there was some inconsistencies there with the time. They know exactly when she when she died, and they know when he got to his sister's house. So they're trying to figure this out. Is there any way that he could have done this? He insists that he did not. There's also the fact that he had his five-year-old son in the car with him. So this would mean, if he did this that his five-year-old son had to see something, would have some memory of something going on. So they also kind of were, were having a problem there. He, just within hours of them finding her, he comes to Miriam's house. And what he says happened is he got out. He's, oh my goodness, what happened? How was she killed? And that, they said, oh, she was shot. This is what he says. They said, well, actually, what, what happened is when he got there, one of the first things that he said was, what evidence was found? Ding, 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 ding. Like, that's a really odd thing for a, someone, even, even if you are the ex-husband or soon-to-be ex-husband, still the mother of your child, still someone you were in a relationship for years, and the first thing that you say is what evidence i mean that's just a really odd question is it not it, very odd you know and, and i i'm sure that the police at the time picked up on that and thought oh okay now we've got this divorce that's not going smoothly and then soon to be ex-husband shows up and just doesn't act right you know there's probably something there yes exactly so remember they found that silencer there that kind of looked like it had sort of homemade silencer that would go on a rifle. They found some hairs inside of the silencer. So they were like, well, hey, here, who else, who's, who else's hair would be in the silencer other than the person who killed her? So they send that off for DNA testing. It didn't match him. So now they're going, well, <laughs> Well, well, in 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 fact, the, the the hair didn't even match the other strands of hair in it. There were there were three strands of hair, yeah. and all three strands came from different people. Exactly. So yeah, that's a little bit kind of like, well, that's odd. You, they and you know these officers had to just been like, I cannot wait to, to get these results back. It's gonna <laughs> be him. And then it was like, no, it's not him. So they also tested the cigarette butt, 
and it was not him as well, which I don't he didn't smoke. So and I, I always feel like in these cases, they they'll find cigarette butts and things like that around. And I always wonder, yeah, it could rule someone in as a suspect. But I feel like that they don't know how long that was there, or whose it was. It's not like they found a murder weapon or something, you know, with a fingerprint. I mean, I right. just, I don't know. Right. I always wonder about that. Yeah, it's it's not, I, I would, of course, I'm not an expert in criminology, but I, I would think that that would not really be significant in the, in the scheme of like ruling people out. Yeah, I wouldn't either. I can understand it if you found it and it did have his DNA on it. Like, what were you doing standing there? then that, you know, you were definitely at the scene. This is your DNA. But if it's not theirs, it could have been anyone's. That doesn't mean it was the killer's, some other person. So then they start looking at his household possessions, and they find out he had drill presses, grinding material, woodworking equipment, things that they're thinking could possibly be used to make a silencer. But, you know, uh, could also, you know, be possessed by anybody. Not necessarily, like, just because you have those things, it does not necessarily mean, hey, I'm manufacturing bootleg suppressors out of my basement, you know. Yes. But it's definitely something to consider. Yeah. And that, and the thing is, whenever you're looking at these cases, it's sometimes I look at it, I try to look at it from the point of view of someone who really, of the, the person that they're targeting is innocent. And, and I'm thinking they really could be pulling together all of these things that really are not true clues. They're really not tied to this case, but they look bad. And you could take, well, look at all this woodworking stuff. I have a neighbor that loves to do woodworking. He has all of those things, all of those things in his garage. And he does beautiful wood carvings and things. And it's just gorgeous. He's an artist. So a lot of people actually have that as a hobby. And yet, if you kind of spin it in that light, you can just make it look like, oh, look, he's got all this stuff to make this, when really it may have not had anything to do with it at all. They can spin it. If they get fixated on one suspect, then everything that they see, they can just pull in as, oh, here's one more thing, here's one more thing, and they're not looking at other people. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does make you wonder, you know, like, if someone just really wanted to get you in trouble for something if they're like oh i I think they did so and so you know and then the the police come and start looking through your belongings i mean you might have a lot of things that are normal things people have camping equipment well-worn hiking boots yep bandanas whatever and then you know if if someone's accused you of bringing drugs across the border someone who enjoys backpacking in their free time now suddenly looks like a drug mule and they they haven't done anything wrong yeah Speaking of which, so a few weeks ago, I went to Las Vegas to the National Nurses and Business Conference. And when I or I was trying to come up with like a business card type thing to hand out to people just to sort of like network and be like, hey, here's a way to remember me kind of thing. Well, instead of doing an actual business card, I thought I would have like a little gift I could give someone that would have my information on it. And so what I decided to do were mints. And so have you ever seen those tiny little Altoids? <laughs> so <laughs> these little mints are like, 
<laughs> it's the size of a business card. It, it's like really flat. And I was like, this is perfect because if you're a nurse and you want to have mints in your pocket for like handoff report or whatever, you can just keep them in your pocket and they don't take up a lot of room. And it's got my name. It's got my logo on it. It's got my email, you know, website, whatever. And so I took like... 300 of these things. The, the worst illicit drug disputer, uh, distributor in the world. I can, literally I, literally yeah. Printing your information on there. It's so bad. And I, I, I didn't, you know, I get on, going to get on the airplane, security, of course, what happens? Here comes my suitcase. And what happens? Do you think it just goes right along with everybody else's? Nope. It gets diverted over there. And then I'm like, oh, I am in so much trouble right now. Because what did they see when they were scanning it? But little squares with tiny little pill looking things in them. And they open it up and it didn't get any better when they opened it up because it still looks like little bitty <laughs> white pills. <laughs> pills. I could not believe I thought I'm about to be in so much trouble right now. They I'm like, open them up i don't care they're they're altoids i promise they're mints it, it probably helped in that case that your information was printed on it because that would have also matched your you know government issue id and i would think it very strange for someone to be trying to smuggle drugs with <laughs> your name stamped all over it like, right <laughs> you know you there's no way you can deny that one you know exactly <laughs> that's all you <laughs> right so i get they let me go on through but i was i was nervous about it and i had to go back because i didn't hand them all out so i had to get back on the plane going back the other direction and i was just like so nervous so when you say that that's what they made me think of that is so true though you could, who knows what we do in our personal lives every day that you know, heaven forbid something happen and they start looking at you and they are something that you do all of the time looks like evidence to them. And if they get fixated on that, you know, you could just be in serious trouble. So four months later, things got a little odd because these anonymous letters start showing up. His attorney, Dr. Illis's attorney, gets a letter that but it says, Dr. Illis is not the person who can... <laughs> I mean, hey, anonymously, I just want to let you know, between you and me, Dr. Illis did not commit this murder. And so he signed it. Now, I didn't say this in the beginning, but Miriam was Lebanese. And um, so in this letter, this person claimed that she was killed because she was a racist. And... This is something that when they looked in her past and talked to all of the people around her, because they took it seriously, no one could substantiate that. Everyone was just said, that's, there's no way that's true. There's no way. So, but the person who wrote this anonymous letter said she was racist, and then they signed it, soldier of God, soldier of equality, soldier of death, and sort of seemed like, okay, whoever wrote this killed her and for for these reasons they started they received other letters as well and they just sort of rambling talking about themselves some of the letters that gave enough information that it was sort of obvious that the letter would have been written by a particular doctor at the hospital where she had worked so, or that's connected with with Dr. Illis and with her. So, there was there was enough information put in this letter that when the when they when the police read it, it led them right to this one particular doctor. So, 
That's kind of interesting. They got a police warrant with all this stuff. Of course, they got a warrant. They searched his his place. And they found a book called the FBI Handwriting Analysis Book that he had. And in that, it advised for you to use pencil when writing a note like this that you want to be anonymous and to use block printing so that they wouldn't be able to then take that handwriting and tie it back to any previous handwriting that you'd had before. And this letter was written like that, incidentally. Yeah, I, um, I, as I understand it, oftentimes people in the, 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 the criminal in these situations, whoever it, it be, oftentimes has some narcissistic personality tendencies, if not narcissistic personality disorder. And so I can't help but think like whoever carried out this crime at the time must have thought I'm quite smug. I have written these untraceable letters I have done X, 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 you know, all, all these things. I'm not going to get caught and I'm going to have a good time manipulating the police in the process. Oh, yeah. And then tie back a completely innocent person if that's the case, because they took this they took the letters very seriously. And when they when they kind of said, oh, this sounds like this doctor, they investigated that doctor. Dr. Zama was the name of that doctor. They looked very closely at that doctor. But he had first of all, he had an ironclad alibi. And second of all, just he would, again, everybody in, in his circle would have said, absolutely not. There's no way he did this. He, so, he was actually a good friend of, of Miriam, as I understand it. Yes. So, you know, it's even less motive. Right. It just didn't make any sense at all. And the investigators start thinking, OK, let's look at this. So the silencer that was left had hair three hairs and from three different people in the silencer. Do we think three different people stood there holding the rifle? What? How did that possibly happen? That makes no sense. The cigarette butt had a DNA in it from a completely different person also. And now these letters are coming specifically saying, oh, it wasn't Dr. Illis and trying to clearly direct them toward this other person. And so they're just going, hmm. Is it possible someone maybe planted these clues? <laughs> Do you think this was the first time they thought about this? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I, I would think the, the hairs would be the first. Like, yeah, this is really unlikely. I mean, seriously, when they I mean, I'm sure what happened is when that in, initial conversation, when he gets out of the car and first arrives at her house and he says, you know, first thing, he's still probably panting from being out of breath. Like, what evidence did you find? And they're kind of like, well, that's a weird question. But then they keep going, maybe don't think much of it. But then whenever they they find the cigarette butt and the hairs, all different DNA, ding, ding, ding. I'm sure they were just like, mm, there's no way that's just a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there, there's things that and I would imagine it's this way with most professions. But there's things with nursing that, you know, you'll you'll someone will say something or their body will react a certain way you know their their vital signs change or, or something and you think oh i've seen this before i need to check x or you know i need to check y and so i would think police would have similar encounters where it's like eh, last time somebody asked what evidence was found they were the one that put the evidence there so i probably should pay attention to that you know I, i'm i'm sure that, that quite early on the police had a strong suspicion of, of who they who really they were they were looking at 
Yes, I would imagine so, too. Even though they kind of had all this evidence and it did seem pretty damning, I guess, against him, it it was a lot of it was sort of circumstantial and they didn't feel like they had a strong enough case, especially since he was such an upstanding member of the community. They didn't feel like they had enough evidence to prosecute him, so they didn't charge him for a while. And the, the case kind of went cold and he married the nurse that he was having an affair with. He married her about six months after Miriam's murder. And so the summer of 1999, there was a fisherman that was out kind of in a rural area. And about 40 feet from the road off of Route 15, which is the same route Dr. Illis said he drove that night, they found a rifle. And he said he, at first he didn't think it was a rifle. He tripped over something and thought it was just like, you know, some wood or whatever. As you, have you ever been fishing and you're kind of got, going through the edge trying to find a different spot to fish? You know, like if you fish this spot and then you kind of walk. That's what I kind of envision. And he kind of tripped over it and he looked down and he, he said, whoa, that's a scope. And he realized it wasn't driftwood. So it turned out it was a very rare rifle that was made up until 1949 and no more of those rifles were sold after 1949 so there weren't a whole lot of them in circulation it's very rare this this one was even more rare the barrel and the stock had both been sawed down so now you're talking about an old and rare rifle with unusual modifications done to it yeah i mean that it's it's not like finding a baseball bat in the woods this is very specific yeah, so they're like, there's this has to be the murder weapon. There was a silencer put on. This thing has the end sawed off of it to be to make room, I guess, for a silencer. And there's kind of no doubt in their mind that this is the murder weapon. So what are the chances that that murder weapon happens to be thrown away along the same route that that doctor took on his way to to visit his sister that night that she was killed and then he didn't he's not the one that did it i mean it's starting we're we're really kind of narrowing it down here <laughs> so about a year later so they this has taken a while it was like 4 years that this went on this investigation went on and they come across a picture of Dr. Illis and his godfather. So Joe Kowalski apparently taught him how to hunt and left him with a bunch of guns. Like that was, he left them in his will to him. And they found a picture of his godfather, Joe Kowalski, holding up a groundhog in one hand and a bolt action rifle in the other. And that rifle looked exactly like the one that they found, obviously, the very rare one that wasn't sold after 1949 and that had subsequently been sawed off. Obviously, it wasn't in the picture, but they knew what was they knew what was up at this point. So a couple months later, same area, they find a pair of sneakers, size 14 Reebok sneakers in the same area where the rifle was found. So just, once again, 
I don't know, sometimes the intellect of people who are obviously so intelligent, just so that have accomplished so much. And then you see these sequence of this, you know, sequence of events like this and things that they do after the fact. And you're just, you just kind of go, wow, because clearly he thought this out. There's so much planning the evidence and the trip and all of the, all of these things, but there will always, I don't care how intelligent you are. There's always going to be a detail that you're going to forget. You're just, something's going to happen. Adrenaline's pumping. It's crazy. And you're going to, you're going to make a mistake. So they find the shoes. They know they're size 14. He was a size like nine and a half. It was clearly this, this shoe, the size 14. How, who wears size 14 anyway? That is a humongous shoe. I don't know anybody that wears a size 14 shoe. My, my husband is six foot one and he wears an 11 and a half, maybe 11 or 11 and a half. Yeah, I, I coincidentally have two friends that wear size 14, but <laughs> but it, it is very unusual. I, I, will, I will say that. Do they live in Pennsylvania? <laughs> uh, they do not, thankfully. And uh, they also would have been like uh, three years old at the time of this <laughs> incident. So I doubt they were size 14 at the time. So, <laughs> Well, so the DA, surprisingly enough... It, with all this evidence, still felt like there wasn't enough evidence to charge. So they still weren't charging him. And so he moves from there to Texas to get another job as a heart, heart surgeon in a hospital near the Mexican border, conveniently, I'm sure. And from there... Of course, he's all the time saying, well, I'm innocent and it's just I just needed to get away. If I were going to run, I would have. Why would I stay in the United States? You know, he acts like that's crazy. So someone every time he moves and gets another job, someone sends a packet of art, news articles and everything that have to do with this whole case to the his bosses at these hospitals. So he cannot hold down a job. He moves to Spokane, Washington. Same thing happens. And a packet gets sent there. He loses that job. So, I mean, he ba- they basically are they're saying he thought he got away with the perfect crime. And so they finally decide that they're going to arrest him. So they go and they arrest him when he's living in Spokane. And when they do... They search his house and they find a manuscript on his computer of a book that he was writing. And the name of the book that he is writing is called Heart Shot, Murder of the Doctor's Wife. Unbelievable. All the characters had the same names as the real people in the investigation. And he is like laying it all out there in a, in a book as if it's a confession and when he was asked why, why would you do that? Because he wrote it from the point of view of the killer. He says, I thought it would generate more interest and more widespread knowledge of the actual facts of the case, which were not being disseminated by the police. That was my motive. And there seems to be the narcissism again. Just unbelievable. So they did charge him and a jury returned a guilty verdict. First degree homicide. Thank goodness. He was clearly a very intelligent person. I mean, he planned this out for a long time, and 
he did a lot of things to try to keep himself, for, I'm sure, from getting caught. And he, he probably was just so proud of all of the stuff that he did, planning all the evidence and planning everything just just so. And yet, as intelligent as he was, all of the people that were involved in this investigation together were obviously smarter. Because right. You know, you you look at it, and you know, now we have you know all these all these shows, FBI files, you know, the crime shows that people enjoy watching. And I, I've heard people before joke about, oh, you know, I, if my husband ever does anything, I know how to knock him off. You know, I've seen too many of these crime shows. Yeah. But it's almost like Dr. Isles was going out of his way to plant evidence to make someone think that someone was clumsy and and didn't know what they were doing, you know, but the, he, he said in a statement that the, that the murderer had size 14 shoes. I wear a size nine and a half. Well, you can yeah. put small feet and big shoes. That's, that's not a problem. Yeah. But he goes on to say they, uh, they had, they found DNA on a cigarette, but that only the killer could have left there. Uh, if you're the murderer, you don't want to leave a silencer behind that has evidence. You don't want to leave evidence in letters that can be traced to you. I'm enough of a scientist to know that. I don't know. To me, that, that just sounds suspicious, maybe. like It sounds know. like someone who thought all of that out and knew. It sounds like someone who is saying, look, this is the way you're supposed to be looking at this, because this is how I, pl- I plan this out so that you would find this stuff and think this about this, and you're not thinking about this correctly. Right. That's, to me, what he, he's just like, you people are idiots. You're supposed to look at the size 14 shoe print. And say, oh, it can't be the doctor. He wears a nine and a half. I mean. Right. <laughs> it, it, I think it would be different if it was flipped, maybe. You know, the, the doctor wears size 14. These are nine and a half. I don't know that. You, I, I mean, maybe you could cram those on. But, you know, even still, that would be kind of a. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Red herring. It'd be hard to make snow prints out of a smaller shoe and not leave other prints. <laughs> yeah, like where you tripped and fell and then dragged yourself yeah. through the snow trying to stand back up and, you know. Right. That would be really hard. Yes. What what they think probably actually happened is that he picked up his son at Miriam's house and they, they think he most likely gave something to Richie to kind of knock him out. I mean, he's a doctor. He knows how to give him his son something that kind of will keep him out of it for a little while so that he doesn't have any memory of what happened. And then they think he parked his vehicle out back and then just kind of, you know, snuck along to that area so that he had, you know, the her, the window within sight and waited for her to be in front of the window. And then, of course, planted all the evidence with someone else's DNA, put the silencer there, planted the, the hairs and, and clearly then drove all the way back and stopped at the McDonald's. So he would be seen and and all of that stuff, not realizing that she was going to be on the phone that night. And that time, that exact time of 1037, because if, if she had not been on the phone when, when he shot her, they would not have known. There's no way they could have tied this back to him because he was out of town for three days. So by the time they would have found her on Sunday, 
they would not have been able to say definitively when she died. And there's just no way it would have ever been tied back to him. There may have been suspicion, but they couldn't have proven it for sure. Yeah. And then you'd have a heart surgeon running around the country doing open heart surgery, yeah. you know, and, and having murdered someone. I mean, that's that's terrifying. It really is. So that is our bad doctor story for the week. Dr. Illis, our cardiac surgeon. So we don't ever want to pick on one particular specialty and then not give them a little uh, that specialty a little shout out for doing good things because as we always say the vast majority of healthcare providers are wonderful people and these are the little bitty minority of people who are healthcare providers are human they're made up of people who are going to make mistakes who are going to be bad people choose to do bad things and so That's the bad element. But the vast majority of healthcare providers are amazing, amazing people who go around the world doing awesome, wonderful things. And so this is about a heart doctor, Dr. John Brown, who'd been a cardiothoracic surgeon for almost 40 years. So you can imagine the number of people that he has, whose lives he's saved. So... There's actually a, car- a cardiologist and an, a nurse practitioner in particular who he literally saved their life when they were children. Yes. So Nicole Gralia, when she was one day old, she was a blue baby, which meant she was born with a hole in her heart. She was missing her pulmonary valve. He was a pediatric heart surgeon and he was able to do open heart surgery on this tiny little one-day-old baby? Is that not amazing? It, it really is. And then she grew up to be a nurse practitioner. And now she's working in the same hospital where he works. Is that not cool? It's it's really cool. You know, and, and when you look at the at the credentials of this doctor, I mean, it he is a extraordinarily skilled surgeon. At, at the time of the of the writing of this article we're we're referencing, uh, that was sometime in 2017, I think in April. Um, at that time, he had performed 15,000 heart surgeries. He's credited with uh, with Indiana's first pediatric heart transplant and first newborn heart transplant. So he's an incredibly, incredibly skilled and gifted pediatric heart surgeon. Oh, yes. Clearly making a difference for a lot of people. Absolutely. She said that he's the reason that she went into medicine. She, he's the reason that she's even here. And he's the reason that she went into medicine. She admired him so much. And then there is another doctor. Uh, Mark Ayers. Mark Ayers. He became a cardiologist. And oh, there's a, a picture of him in here when he was nine. He had to have heart surgery at that same hospital. And he, same situation, he not only saved his life, but he said it defined his life's purpose. There's so many people who go through kind of a a life-threatening illness or a situation like that when they're young. And because of the experience that they have with healthcare professionals, with the doctors who work with them or the nurses who work with them or whoever it is, someone that's around them taking care of them makes a huge impression on them. And they think, wow, that's that's amazing. I want to do that one day. And it may be a nurse, it may be a doctor, maybe a surgeon, it may be, who knows, respiratory therapist, physical therapist. But you never know whose life you are 
being an impression on and who how you're changing someone's completely their life course just by being an example, a good example of what you're supposed to be. Right. Well, and, and you look at this nurse practitioner uh, and this this physician that were both patients of Dr. Brown, you know, they, they have matching scars. And, and so, you know, when they now are, are working with pediatric patients and subsequently the parents of these patients, which I would argue are just as much of a patient as the patient is a patient, you know, they're, they're able to say, look, I, I have the scar from the same surgery and I grew up and I'm fine and I'm living a successful life and things are normal or, or close to normal, you know, and I think that, that would be incredibly comforting for parents uh, to know, hey, my, you know, my kid can survive this and be like any other kid and for kids to think, okay, I, there, you know, there's, I, I'm going to get better. Yes. And they all agree. All three of these people agree that it is a privilege to care for they say for pediatric patients, I think that it's a privilege to care for anyone who mm-hmm. comes into the hospital that's sick, that they're vulnerable. And so it's a privilege as a healthcare provider, healthcare professional, whatever it is that you do, to be able to take care of someone at their most vulnerable and just at, at a time in their life when many people are just like the worst day of their life, depending on what they're in there for. Yes. Well, thank you so much. That does it for another week of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. I appreciate you coming on, Hugh, so much. Absolutely. Really enjoyed it, it. It, it, was, it was my pleasure. I've really enjoyed this. You've, you've, got a, you've got a great podcast. Thank you. And I just want to remind you guys that, well, first of all, I was literally about to get off here without reminding you to go to the website, and I'm pretty sure I would have been in major, major trouble with Mark, my husband. Definitely go to the website and... Uh, goodnursebadnurse.com. You can listen to the episodes there. And we're pretty soon going to start putting a special section on there for information about the Redonda Vaught case so that you'll have kind of one place to be able to go to and be updated. So we can kind of keep updates because people are constantly asking about that. Also, you can, of course, you can send me an email, ideas for cases in your area or that you know of and message me on social media at good nurse bad nurse podcast or gnb and podcast either instagram or facebook and we appreciate you guys listening so much and i also just want to remind you guys even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy right hugh oh yes <laughs> be a good nurse <laughs> <laughs>